0: This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. On today's show, my guest is Stephen Jones. He tells a very personal, very moving story of his own experience growing up within evangelicalism, the family struggles he's faced, and the process of dismantling and reconstructing or rediscovering a healthy sense of self and of faith during his time at Christian College and the years thereafter. Now, without priming you too much, this episode is very different than episode one. Whereas episode one was acerbic and cynical, Stephen's story is redemptive and full of hope. He shares about his doubt about reconciling rational skepticism with intuitive belief, and also about his engagement within the mystical tradition the last of which is the basis of an experience that he shares near the end of the interview that is worthy of the word revelation. It's a very different type of experience than the one that is often found within uh, evangelicalism, and the very reason that I want to share such diverse stories. I hope you're encouraged by Stephen's story. I know I was. Now let's get into it. Um so yeah we could we could go a couple of different ways i I mean I could just kind of open it up to you and let you sort of respond I, if we wanted to have more of a conversation, we can kind of start at our similar starting point, which again is really just our our alma mater, but um, I mean that's I mean, that we didn't know each other very well in college actually, so um
1: that might be a good place to start, you know yeah we we really didn't um, yeah but we in some ways, I mean, we ran in similar circles. You know? Yeah,
0: we did. Yeah, we there was like a Venn diagram of like uh, of yeah. like people that that we had in common. There were like similar people that uh, my roommate um, was a good friend of yours, as well as his older brother and everything. Um, so yeah, we absolutely ran in similar circles. I took um, mm. religion classes, um, mostly um, like Greek classes and you were in the philosophy department. So there was a lot of, um, there was definitely, we, we ran into each other a lot for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, uh, tell me a little bit about what, you know, led you there to Christian college and what, what, what set you on that? Cause I think, um, a lot of people that that would be listeners um, probably have a similar experience at a at a Christian college or a Christian high school or whatever else. But um, but I do think for a lot of people there is an element of choice. For some people there isn't. But um, what led you
1: to to um, to our college? You know that's an interesting story because I had actually earned free rides to um, several good schools, including one private school. Um, and I, I didn't expect it. Um, my teachers uh, told me I was an idiot for turning them down. Um, but I, I seriously applied to one school, and I was accepted, and that's where I went. Um, and I'm not sure exactly why, when I think back on it, why, why did I just choose the one school and i don't think i have a good answer for it um i could reduce it to something as simple as they had a display at you know a summer camp um like a family camp at the campground you know not not like a youth thing um and i saw it and i liked it and decided that's where i would go but i don't think that that is a satisfactory explanation um I'm always a little uncomfortable, maybe very uncomfortable talking about ideas like providence. But if I'm being honest, I I think that I was led there. Um, I think that I arrived at a very particular time and encountered a very particular set of people and it changed my life. Um so even though i'm i'm loath to admit huh, that i think that there was some divine you know involvement in that process i kind of have to admit that that i that i really do think that way and that's a that's a
0: absolutely legitimate response i i wouldn't i mean <laughs> for for all, for as much you know, as this podcast is called Evangelical, it's very that title is targeted towards a particular type of belief, um, not necessarily the, not really espousing a lack of belief. That's um, kind of no, absolutely. That's not so. Um. So yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't discredit that at all. Um,
1: no, and I, I mean, and I don't think that a lot of people do. I think that a lot of people who aren't particularly religious are still open to that idea of calling or being led or having a sense of purpose, you know? Um, I personally am very uncomfortable with it. That's the that part of my religious baggage is um, the is a sensitivity to the spiritual and the divine um, and being honest about that with people. That, that's a challenge for me.
0: Mm -hmm. um so what about what about before i mean you 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 got high marks or you you got full ride offers and everything um prior to selecting our school um what what was your what was like your first encounter or experience within evangelicalism um I know that's kind of like a, that's, that's intentionally vague.
1: (laughs) So, um, well, I'm, I'm a bit of a cradle evangelical, I guess. Um, I grew up in a nominally Wesleyan church, um, previously pilgrim holiness. So very, very conservative, um, pilgrim holiness would have been by today's standards, uh, considered, fundamentalist but merged into the Western mm-hmm. camp you know moderated their positions a bit but some of that old energy was still around um and in this particular church it was a strange and sometimes dark energy um but still nominally evangelical and moving that direction over the years so uh i was born right into it
0: okay yeah and um so you, you were, you were born into it. Did you have, um, I mean, were was your family, a, uh, regular attenders or things like that? Or was it a, was it a family connection there? I mean, you said you were born into it, so right. that implies family. Um, but, but every, every family dynamic is pretty unique. So what, um, I mean, if this is too personal,
1: you let me know. Oh, so, um, um, so honestly, uh, this whole thing is, is going to be pretty personal for me. Um, these things cut at the, at the root of uh, my, my story. Um, family, the way family and religion dovetail in my life is pretty significant. Um, on one hand, my mom's family had been a part of that church um, and uh, the regional church uh, for generations. Uh, I mentioned the camp earlier my my great grandfather on that side helped to build the big tabernacle there. Um, i was I was there every year uh, with with uh, my grandparents for family camp um, for a couple years as a teenager, I was there uh, in the summer for for like youth camps um, and as is from the case with small churches like that it's comprised of you know two families basically um and my family was one of, was one of those um however that being said uh, my mom was not particularly religious um at least in overt ways she knew things she um religious language and ideas would color her behavior and how how she would speak but I never got a sense that she was um, practicing or devotionally Christian. Um, my dad, who had married into the church and didn't feel any particular connection to it, was actually you know very devotional in faith, kind of a homespun, you know, uh, farm wisdom kind of religion. Um, but but he meant every word of it. Um, and so those those clashing dynamics fought themselves out in me. It, mm-hmm. um, so, so, yeah, I mean, my parents in particular, not really so religious in overt ways, um, but the rest of the family was. And they weren't exactly models you know, uh, like a model Christian family either. There was a a ton of dysfunction, but man, they were at church every Sunday. And, uh, you know, the time when I brought cards with me because I was bored, my grandmother just slapped them right out of my hand, you know? Uh, So they knew the rule very well. Um,
0: Okay, yeah. So during that that time, I mean, it sounds like you just even from your recollection, it sounds like you were paying attention. You were, um, you were a, um, uh, you were a kid that, that was, that was watching the adults around them and everything. Um, and as well as what was being taught from the pulpit. What did you, what did you think of the, the way that what the church, what the church taught back then? Um, And what, and about the people even outside of your family, um, within your, within your group or your church family, so
1: to speak. You know, I have to say that most of the time what was taught, um, was not very substantial. Um, the pastors I had when I was young were not good preachers. Um, They were nice guys, and they cared about people. But I never got the sense that they were bringing any kind of fire to it, you know? Um, So in Sunday school classes, I would engage um, pretty heavily. I would want to know more I would ask questions or or more likely than not I would try to know all the answers before I got there. Um because I was that kid. Um and so I was pretty young the first time my pastor pulled me aside and asked me if I'd considered uh becoming a pastor because I knew all the answers. You know, I, I knew stuff and that was that itself was remarkable. In that church, because um, the people just didn't really know so much. Um, I think they probably could have handled more, but it was never given to them. Pastors didn't push that. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand, the popular energy, you know, the popular piety in the congregation um, could be very severe and very dark. Um, there wasn't a lot of um, a lot of theology around it but there was a strong sense of what the gospel meant and the gospel was generally that everything's falling apart but, you know you can you can escape the crumbling world if you're lucky um, the good news was was a very dark good news you know what i mean um,
0: was that being given to um what was that um what was the congregation like socially or economically like what 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 station were the people in that were receiving that message
1: um, the congregation generally speaking was was an aging congregation, but at least by the time i I left um, there, there was still a range of ages there. Um, So they weren't like a a solely, you know, elderly congregation, but, but generally speaking, that's where things were moving. And um, so many of the families had been middle-class, but had also been retired for so long that Um, middle class stops losing its meaning, you know, uh, in certain forms of retirement. And, uh, um, but not all, not all of them were, there were several families who lived in poverty and mine was one, mine was uh, probably the most severe uh, poverty in the, in the church.
0: And do you think that, and do you think that impacted how, how you interpreted things and how, how that message, um, of, you know, things are dark, but you can escape through, through faith. Yeah. And how, how did that, I mean, how did that play out and um, what you're able to see and, and for you?
1: That's a really great question. Um, in that I am I'm having to actually think it through. Um I I was not conscious of these dynamics at the time. However, when I look back on that period of my life, part of the growing sense I had about the condition of the congregation I was in, um had to do with this uh, the illusory nature of, of their, their religious um, views, right? Um, what I mean by that is they believed things were the way they were because that's um, the religious culture that they had inherited. That told them how the world was, so they didn't look at the world... For what it was, they didn't see anything about the world outside the way they were expected to find the world, right? So, I mean, I, I'm coming to that to that church out of a pretty broken place. My whole childhood, um, my mom uh, was severely mentally ill. We were living in poverty. So when I was told the world was a dark place. I would say, well, sure, there's darkness all around me, but I'm a pretty happy guy. And by the way, what the hell is wrong with you people? Because you've actually got it pretty nice. What are you complaining about? (laughs) Um, I had a real problem with the way that they would play into remnant theology. You know, Uh, remnant theology is it, it's theology of the oppressed. You know, it's by the oppressed for the oppressed. These are people who, um, you know, bad things are happening to them. And, and the message of that, is, of, of remnant theology, is maybe only a few of us will survive this. But the few who survive will rebuild this 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 evil that is befalling us will not crush us, right? That's empowering for people who are truly suffering. But when you put that theology in the hands of people who aren't suffering, then they play the victim. You know, they they become complacent and lazy. They blame other people for what's going wrong in the world. they They lack a certain kind of introspection that helps them see what's actually going on with themselves. I mean, remnant theology in the hands of privileged people is a horrible, horrible thing. Hmm. Is that too much? (laughs) No,
0: that was great. No, I think that's, I, I think that's, that's right on. Um, so, so, I mean, um. just kind of jumping from that, I mean, um, did you, did the church attendance and everything else did that? Did you continue to attend church throughout your teenage years and all that sort of stuff? Was there an active youth group culture at your church or at another church or that you, um, that you went to or anything like that, that, because um, I think that is a, that's a formative period for young people in general, that period of adolescence and, um, and that, that, that period of education and also where you have peers, um, which from, from my experience in, in youth, in a youth group, a very strong youth group, um, was, uh, you know, you have kind of, you kind of have your peers, um, teaching you, and like forming each other, even though that might not be the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, what was, what was your experience like, um, at, at that point in your life?
1: It was really kind of chaotic. I think, um, there wasn't a place for me to be. Um, when I was offered places to be, I struggled to, um, feel like I could, actually fit there. And honestly, part of that is, is just my personality. Um, I, I tend to feel like I'm an outsider wherever I'm at. Right. I identify most, With whoever, whatever group I'm not a part of at the moment, yeah. So I'm I'm always (laughs) defending whoever's not there. I'm always criticizing the people I'm with. But in a different situation, you know, I'd be defending those people.
0: Yeah, I, I have a similar tendency. I, I identify. So,
1: yeah. So, so I can't really blame, you know, the groups or the options that were given to me. I was just a little bit of a curmudgeon. Um, well, no, now I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon at the <laughs> time. I was probably a real pain at everyone's ass. Um, uh, my congregation was in, in pretty serious decline, um, through my high school years. And I actually remember at one point, like confronting the leaders of my church and saying, Hey, uh, have you noticed that this is a problem? Have you noticed that people are, um, they seem to be actively uh, run off from our church as if we're trying to get rid of them. Um, are we not going to do anything about this? Are we not going to invest in what it takes to uh, breathe new life into this thing? Because we're on the path to death. You know, I feel like if nothing changes, the congregation is going to die. Well, admittedly, I probably handled that very poorly Um I felt a deep conviction, uh, like a message that I needed to say, and I don't feel that profound conviction very often. I feel like I stepped out and followed this conviction where it led, but I was, I was an angry, awkward teenager, and I probably did a terrible job, and their reaction to it was terrible. They were all angry with me. Um, you know, I, I poked the wound, you know? Um... And, and none too gently. And so when that was the reaction I got, I realized there's no hope for me here. Um, there was another Wesleyan church in my town. And so sometimes I went and joined their youth program. Um, but I didn't know anyone there. Um, and that's a particular challenge for me. Once so I have a foot in the door with the person, then I'm fine. But when it's a, a brand new, you know, connection, um, I just find that exhausting. I'm, I'm particularly bad at it. So there was, there wasn't much incentive for me to keep going there. Um, but actually that was where I got the majority of my, um, exposure to, uh, all the crazy end times nonsense, <laughs> right? Um,
0: so this because
1: uh, they showed us all the all the horrible movies and all did that. You, was
0: this the like the left behind <laughs> era of things and some like somewhere along that timeline when when that was really popular
1: it was it was before those were coming out um but the same kind of theology so the for instance, this one movie we watched i I, I don't even remember what it's called it was i mean the production values were pretty bad, but also um It just felt oppressive and dark like there's no hope for anything um because of course that's the idea is that there isn't hope um and uh it it left me with this feeling that um well no impending doom i mean it's a cliched phrase but that's precisely what it is and honestly that's the exact same feeling of depression you know well I mean, obviously, people experience depression in many different ways, but uh, a sense of impending doom is very common, and that's certainly how I experienced it. And so uh, eventually, that clued me in that maybe something was wrong with that way of thinking. Anyway, um, that was where I got most of my exposure with that. Um, But again, that's not a place I could stay. Um, I had this friend who is also named Blake. Um, <laughs> but he's he's a much less interesting and reliable guy. But he was my friend, and he went to uh, church further away. Um, but I would go there when I would visit him and get a connection with the pastor there who was uh, younger than most pastors I had known. Um, he took an interest in us. And there was a, another a younger guy there who um, was really struggling in his life and found um, a lot of reassurance in his faith, and that's when he became a very strong Christian. And so he sort of took us under his wing also, uh, trying to mentor us, Um, which is interesting when his life is in disarray also, but um, he was able to share some interesting Uh, wisdom with us because of that and so even though it wasn't really a youth group um, you know we were two teenage guys who um, had sort of been taken on by these two you know relatively young men and that made a huge difference in fact I remember when I was 17 uh, realizing that I hadn't been baptized yet and I, I started asking around, you know, why haven't I been baptized? Um, isn't, isn't that something that should have happened? Nobody even asked me. And uh, I remember my pastor said uh, to me that there's this uh, community baptism that will be happening sometime later in the summer, which sounded like a horrifying thing for me. Uh, and I had just realized I hadn't been baptized. I felt this pressure to do it you know um this is this is something that has been lax apparently and i want to resolve it um so i went to this other church with my friend and a uh, pastor jp of all things i said jp uh i realized i hadn't been baptized and i'd like to be um and so he said all right come by the house and we'll talk and he baptized me that sunday it was that simple um why couldn't it be that simple? You know, um, those were my frustrations. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something when I found a place that took ser- like took my concerns seriously. Uh, you know, that, that was home for me then.
0: Yeah. Is that something, uh, and, and this is a, a more general question. Is that something that is a side effect of the Wesleyan denomination? Cause I feel like the sacraments are from what I know of it, they're they're pretty low on the priority list. I think communion once every quarter, you know, I've never witnessed a Wesleyan baptism at any mm-hmm. service I've been to. So, uh, and I, I came from, I mean, Methodists, which they're, you have to be baptized before you're confirmed, and there's communion once a month. So they're not much better, but, I mean, is that was that a side effect? Or did your pastor just not... Think it was important, um, to I mean I let alone let alone I mean I think it's it was it was poor incredibly poor form for someone to turn away an eager person someone eager to be baptized that's a that that doesn't seem like the right stance to take so um, yeah I'm I'm actually I mean, just fishing for information as well here um into you know into what but what um what either whether whether that was something from the from the that individual's perspective or if it was something institutional
1: yeah it, it seems to me that even if um the sacraments aren't held as highly that if someone is expressing an, an interest, expressing a desire, that um, it's probably not something that we should deflate or deflect.
0: Absolutely. Um, I agree.
1: <laughs> however, however, uh, my understanding is um, Wesleyan denomination was formed through mergers. And um, some of the groups that merged um, were from significantly different backgrounds and had different, Approaches to sacrament. And so, what was officially accepted in the Wesleyan Church uh, was pretty broad sometimes. Um, And so, uh, and I didn't learn this until later that, um, and this may not be true of all pilgrim holiness congregations, but my understanding was that the pilgrim holiness didn't practice sacraments. Mm. And so this, this congregation was formerly Pilgrim Holiness, so even though the pastors were, you know, they were Wesleyan pastors, and they had just come in, you know, as pastors do, um, but the congregation had a history of more or less neglecting the sacraments, um, though they, they wouldn't have, you know, called it neglect.
0: So moving on, um, I can, you, you can feel free to interrupt me, um, with, if, um, you know, moving chronologically doesn't work for you. Um, I'm just kind of, kind of moving along in your story a little bit. So you're 17, you, um, you have this compulsion to, to, and a desire to be baptized. Um, it's not met at your home church. You go to your mentor and your mentor baptizes you and that experience um that was 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 that part edifying i mean to to be heard and to to be acknowledged in that way um
1: yeah absolutely um in fact i mean it it timed out in a funny way because uh that sunday happened to be my 18th birthday um and i don't recall i'm guessing that probably factored into how eager i was uh to be baptized um but that's just a guess um, but yeah my my parents hadn't really been attending church for a while, and they actually drove up uh considerably out of their way to go to this other church that Sunday and be there when I was baptized and uh it's a little funny um apparently, the last person who had been baptized there. They had forgotten to turn the water heater on, so the water was ice cold. Oh no! Um, so they had made sure to get the water heater on well ahead of time this time, but they forgot to turn it off. <laughs> so um, the the water was painfully hot. And oh my so goodness! We rearranged, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of how we were going to actually carry out the baptism. So that I would be in the water for the shortest time possible, um, and still I was beat red for hours afterwards. Oh my goodness! And and I actually felt good about that. I took that with me, and I remember um, my parents drove a suburban, and after church um, I was sitting in the back seat of their suburban, and the win- windows were down, and my skin was kind of tingling you know, and, and bright red, um, and the sun was bright and, uh, breathing was easy. And it's one of the lighter times I remember in my life.
0: Oh, that's wonderful.
1: That's, I don't know. I mean, I, w- I wish I could put significance to that, you know, like I felt, you know, this was removed from me or some other change. Um, I really put any substance to it. It just felt good. That was it.
0: Yeah that i mean that can be that can be enough yeah so that's i mean that's a one- that's a wonderful story from beginning to end there <laughs> <laughs> um, so um did you go straight from high school to to college um did you have um did you have any any period in between or did you just get, jump straight into
1: it I jumped straight into it and Honestly, I mean, intellectually, I was fine. But um, personally, emotionally, I wasn't ready. Um, I didn't know how to cope or adjust. Um, And so the time came to go, and I, I mean, I knew how to get there. But I didn't know where I was going or what I was supposed to do when I got there. And I remember having loaded stuff into my Uh, crappy old station wagon and I was getting ready to leave and I remember standing around in front of my parents saying alright well I think I'm about to leave and I got no response from them Hmm. I don't know what I was looking for but I thought there should be something and i I mean I barely got a wave goodbye and we uh, got in my car and drove off And I felt so lost um, And earlier that summer I had happened to go on this Goofy uh, Camping thing Like a wilderness survival trip uh, We were on an island in Michigan And we stayed on the island for a week With you know a few supplies and all that And I made a great connection with this guy named Bruce. Bruce was a big dude, like just tall and, uh, strong and fit. And he was smart. Um, and I made a connection with him. And so for the next year or two, um, I wasn't getting any kind of emotional support from my parents. Um, so when I needed something, I just drove out to the camp to see Bruce and he ended up giving me all of his old Greek texts and I would help him out with whatever was going on around the camp and never failed. Whenever I would pull up, he would say, I wondered who was going to help me with this, you (laughs) you know, um, I don't know if he said that to make me feel good or what. Um, but, but yeah, so, um, the camp was on the way. So I was lost. So instead of going to school, I just went to see Bruce and I said, well, I'm on my way out there. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what this is going to be like. And he just said, you'll be fine. Just go. <laughs> and, and it wasn't much, but it was so much more than what I got from my parents. Uh, and so I went, it was fine. Um, kind of fine. <laughs> yeah. Because I still went home on the weekends because I, I still kept going back for what I wasn't getting. And it took me at least a year to realize that I don't feel better when I go back home. I feel worse. It just renews my depression. So I'm better off if I don't go. That's a hard, that's a hard realization to make.
0: Yeah, and as a as a young as a young person, really just first time first time away for a long time. Yeah, that's that's difficult. So, um, so you have this, um, so you have this family dynamic that you're that you're work that you're working out. What was um. What was school like did and you were a philosophy major? did you enroll and stay as a philosophy major? Did you do any major cha- changes in major or anything like that early on, or did you know even before you went that you wanted to study philosophy and and pursue that?
1: You know it's funny um, <laughs> up until the last minute i I was almost a music major. I don't know why I held on to that as long as I did. I mean, I love music, and I'm, I'm not too bad at it, but I'm not very disciplined. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't going to go anywhere with that. Um, and I was interested in philosophy, but when I first went, I was just a Christian ministry major um, because I didn't have much to go on, but I had many people... Talk to me about the possibility of ministry and the sense I had in, in when I was listening to my heart, I didn't realize that's what I was doing at the time. But the sense I had was that I wouldn't be satisfied in my life doing anything less than what I felt was the most important thing. And the most important thing at the time, I phrased in a very religious way, um, but could have easily have been, you know, uh, just existentialism, you know, if I, if I hadn't been religious. It, it's, it's the issue of the, the ultimate concerns in life, the big questions. And so um, it didn't take me long to realize that Christian, like a Christian ministries major wasn't going to allow me to engage the things that I wanted to engage. Uh, for a short time, I was a triple major, Christian Ministries and Religion Philosophy and and Biblical Literature. Um, and then uh, you actually eventually have to apply to be accepted as a Christian Ministries major. And I was one of the few students they rejected. Um. I don't even remember why I just remember. I never,
0: I never even heard that. Yeah. And uh, all my time in that, and all my time in that building, I did not know that was a thing. And I did not know that they would, they would, re- I mean that they would reject someone either. And I think that, both of those things are, are actually completely new information for
1: me. I don't think that it was something that was talked about much because no one worried about it. No one was ever rejected. Um, I was rejected and I, I mean, I remember sitting down with one of the professors with, uh, and and I, he was one who I respected a lot and he was telling me that he, they weren't going to accept me. Uh, yet he said, you know, maybe sometime in the future we can try this again, but as of right now, we're not going to accept you. And I looking back on it, Um, of course they shouldn't have accepted me. I was in a very bad place at the time. You know, I was a wreck. You don't want to send personal disasters uh, out into the world as young pastors. Um, You don't want to do that for their own sake. Um, Not to mention all of the people who will be affected by their attempts to be ministers. So I should have been rejected. So I'm glad I was. Um, And that forced me to reconsider some things. I ended up dropping the major. And shortly after I dropped the major, that professor asked me back into the office and said, hey, we want to accept you to the major now. And I was like, well, you know, some things have changed. So egg on your face, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Uh, But no, no, he he was very gracious about it and laughed about it. And I was... Even even then, I was able to be thankful that I was rejected because I I had already realized that the shift toward philosophy and religion was was a very good decision for me.
0: Okay, well, I mean, then then uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, that's a that's a very good thing. So, was it either during college or? Um, or any time leading up to it, did you start to experience some sort of either cognitive dissonance, emotional dissonance, or, um, or some sort of crisis of faith between what you were learning and the sort of behaviors and beliefs that you saw either lived out on campus or lived out on, a um, and you know, within within your church family or or elsewhere, that you saw people that called themselves Christians acting. Um, yeah. This is this is kind of this is this is kind of the turning point, and um, kind of what um what uh, what these conversations um what what these conversations are really about is how yeah. people are how people come into this world and how they live in it for a while and then one and then a period of examination sometimes happens. Yeah. Um, so, um, what was that for you?
1: You know, this is one of the,
0: and it doesn't have to be, I'm sorry. It doesn't have to be like one thing either. I, I know for me personally, it was like, it was a culmination of, uh, like a very strong element of, um, political conflation with theology, Mm, um, conservative politics um especially on campus um within the history department i was i was a double major when i first started as a history and bib, biblit majors and then i added a writing major and dropped the biblit to a minor near the end but most of my work was in history um and a, a lot of my work was in history and even some you know church history courses counted and within the social sciences department it was just um extremely overrun with conservative thinking that was unabashed and encouraged. Um, Mm -hmm. and the, the alternatives were squashed before they had a chance. Um, which, which for me was, was one of the, was one of the pivotal things that made me start to examine the overall culture. Um, and I know that for some people, um, other elements of, uh, you know, Christian college campus life, like curfews and, and open dorm hours Mm -hmm. and all that other little legalism stuff that, that creeps into life. Those things make you question or can frustrate you or however you want to phrase it. Um, so, um, how did that kind of manifest in your life? Um, was it and was it at college or elsewhere or after well what was that like?
1: You know this is one of the most important um, moments in my life. Um, and until recently, it was very difficult for me to talk about. um there was a lot of pain associated with it. Um, now I feel like i have I have some distance you know i I've processed this. Many times in many ways. And recently, I'm actually rethinking it a bit. Um, I'm approaching this, um, this time in my life from a different angle. So I'll, I'll, I'll share that as best I can. Um, but w- with the caveat that it's, it's fresh and I'm still exploring this. Um, side note, um, I actually, at, while we were there, um, the uh, the oppressive conservative climate, especially coming out of you know the the poli sci department, um, the history department, um, really turned me off. Um, I was already associating this conflation of religion and politics as a horrible thing, um, extreme conservatism as a very bad thing, um, because those are the things we were seeing especially I saw what it did to the people who were wrapped up in that way of thinking. Um, They, they were very unpleasant to be around. And so that, that simple test meant a lot to me and it still does. Um, I feel like one of the, one of the early convictions of, of Christians, um, you know, as they engaged classical culture is that truth and beauty and the good are all the same thing. And so if you have something you think is true, but it is neither beautiful nor good, then it isn't true, or at least it isn't true as it could be. Um, and so that sense of what you believe shapes you into a certain kind of person. And if it makes you an ugly person, then those beliefs are ugly and probably not true. I was in the early stages of developing those convictions. Um but you know, for me, um, this questioning of the the evangelical, or for me, at the time, the entire Christian uh, perspective on life um, came in a very different way. And it's because of um, my exposure to faith and my exposure to mental illness in my mom. Um, I'll try to capture that briefly, um, because it's it's a bit of that is necessary. Um, my mom has borderline personality disorder, um, and so I don't really blame her for a lot of this, but it did give me a lot of uh, issues to work through. Um, and that's difficult to explain to someone who hasn't experienced that disorder, um, but they don't make personal connections very well. Um, They don't have a a sense of empathy. Um, They're very concerned with their own security. They're likely to use the people around them as tools to create security for themselves, regardless of the effect that it has on those other people. Um, Outside my family, everyone thought my mom was sweet and nice, and they still kind of do. But inside, um, nothing was nothing was guaranteed. Nothing was sacred. Um, I couldn't trust what was being said. Um, what I was being given as love was something very controlling and very manipulative, very abusive. And as I said before, a lot of that would come through with religious language. So even though... Now, I can look back and say, all of this was my m- mom's mental illness, not the religious environment I grew up in. At the same time, it gave me a lot of religious baggage because, you know, she would, she would say things in, in her particular ways. So, so she would, quote, be sure your sins will find you out, right? But what she meant was, you will be exposed. And it contributed to that sense of impending doom um, and was a very effective tool for controlling my behavior when I was young. Um, so even up until recently, I, w- I would very quickly collapse into guilt and shame. And that was the perfect way to shut me down and to control me. So when I, when I arrived in Anna Wesleyan, I'm already fighting against a certain kind of religious thinking that wasn't necessarily something I could assign to the religious environment I grew up in. I I couldn't make that distinction at the time. What I was saying at the time was, Christianity as it's been to me was an ugly thing. And if I'm going to remain Christian, I need to dismantle this. I need to start cutting away everything that's ugly and cancerous about this if I'm ever going to save my faith. Um, and, and I can't say that that has anything to do, or at least very much to do, with the congregation I grew up in or the theology I was given. Uh, there, there is a conflation between the two some elements of like the end times thinking and all that stuff. And mother's there's nothing, when these things came together, the act they had was greater than the sum of the parts, you know? Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. I'm a young student and, you know, and I've got a chip on my shoulder. Um, I am laying waste to everything around me. Um, Partly because I don't feel secure, but if I can make if I can destabilize the sense of order around me, then I have the upper hand I know how to I know how to behave in that environment I'm in control, and all of these people who aren't used to that they they suddenly are in control so it was this weird power trip thing i, I had um, but also anytime I ran into an element of religious practice or or language or belief that was reminiscent of this um ugly abusive thing I was fighting against, then i would I would set out to destroy it, and I didn't realize the extent to which I was dismantling my own faith. Um, I mean i just I was tilting at dragons. you know what I mean? I wasn't fighting something real in the world around me. Um, I was fighting my own inner religious demons. Um, and I remember a professor saying to me after my big crash that this was leading up to, we were watching you dismantle this thing and we were all worried about how far it would go. Um, and I remember early one week, some thoughts started to creep into the back of my mind and I immediately panicked and shoved them away and I refused to think about them. <laughs> and, um, ever so often they would creep back into my mind. And then I, I, remember, I think it was a Friday morning at the end of that week, I was sitting in my ethics class and, all of a sudden, all of that hit me full force, and I didn't believe anymore. And I wanted to, but I couldn't make it happen. And what I experienced was some of the worst grief I've ever experienced in my life. Um, because I wasn't just dealing with a loss of faith. Um. I was also dealing with all of the abuse around the necessity of belief. um and that if it happens to be that this is all true, and now I can't make myself believe, then I'm lost. You know, I'm doomed. Um, and if it happens to be that it's not true, then everything that I've built meaning to in my life is also false and my life has no meaning um i'm not anchored in anything anymore i don't know who i am or what i'm doing and i i was walking through my days um utterly empty i was i was still on a path toward ministry (laughs) but i couldn't make myself believe And that was a place of of just the deepest despair. I lost a lot of weight during that period of my life. Um, My grades were just horrible. I was a very, very bad friend. Um, And that's when I had one of my first unexplained moments. I like call it a, a miracle or a, mystical encounter and it's it's the most absurd story possible the the dumbest thing a person could ever hope to have as a story um and i i think that is intentional <laughs> um, i think i was given an absurd thing for a reason um because what that did was it conditioned how I would come back into the faith because my journey back into the faith is a journey out of cynicism and into being vulnerable with my heart Um, being honest about my intuition Um, what my heart knows is true whether my mind believes it or not um and those themes have become so central to my faith. But it all began in this ridiculous little ridiculous little moment where as soon as it happened, I said, I am not going to believe that. Very, very soon I won't believe that happened. <laughs> right? And so I was forced to either trust my heart, I know that it happened, and I know what that means regardless of the disaster that my mind is in. Um, and that was the beginning of cleaning up my mind and rebuilding. And eventually I I was able to start believing a little bit again, but that was a very long and painful process.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, um, um so you so you you felt that you were able to um you went through all of that while you were in college, like all of that happened within this within the same within the time span that you were at school you you had this rapid you you had this build up of a lot of a lot of emotional and emotional pain you're learning a lot about you're mainlining all these philosophical and theological ideas Mm -hmm. and then you have what you what you say is you you refer to as your crash um and then you began rebuilding as well like right with um that that early early work of recon reconstructing your faith Mm -hmm. that started in college as well
1: yeah um it's it's interesting um A little difficult to explain, but the event that actually culminated in this moment where I couldn't believe was, um, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year at Indiana Wesleyan, my girlfriend broke up with me and we'd been dating for like two and a half years. It was ridiculous, you know, uh, for someone that age, um, but she was still in high school. She should have broken up with me long before she did. Um, but I was compensating for, for lack of affection from a mom, right? So I had this inordinate attachment to her, and I didn't want to let go of her. So kudos to her for being brave and doing the necessary thing and breaking it off. Um, I had so much respect for her, for her, even as that sent me into a tailspin emotionally. So I was already emotionally destabilized. Now I'm having to deal with the absence of whatever I expected to get from my mother because I don't have a cushion against it. So I was in an emotionally frail state, and then I'm right back in the academic environment. And I, I attacked all of that with great intensity. I didn't shy away from the difficult ideas. Um, maybe I should have to be gentle with myself. Um, but I didn't. And so it was mostly my sophomore year where I was in this very dark place. And that's when I that's when I was rejected when I applied to, you know, be a CM major and all of that. Mm-hmm. And junior year was when I finally could start rebuilding. Um and I was a I was a new person then. I had stopped going to see my parents. And I had started building much stronger relationships with the other philosophy and religion guys. Um, And the entire context of my life changed. So I still had a lot of questions and a lot of struggling, um, but I was rebuilding. And that doesn't mean that I was comfortable or stable in my faith because um, I've always struggled with a deep cynicism um, and I'm, I'm a skeptical person to begin with and I think a certain amount of skepticism is, is healthy and, and I, I teach a certain skeptical attitude to my congregants now be skeptical, ask questions don't trust all of this garbage that's being given to you it's beautiful, however, in me coupled with my burden and the darkness I had to fight against and all of my questions and the way all of that mixed in me, um, I didn't have anything resembling a stable, healthy faith for years, but I was happier.
0: And that's certainly a, a good starting place to, to rebuild that. Yeah. So, I I mean, I mean, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to build anything healthy when you're, when you're deeply unhappy.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a, there's a connection between trauma and belief. Um, some people appear to go deeper into, a belief with trauma, but that's not generally the kind of belief that I, I want people to have that I think is healthy. Um, Genuine belief um, has everything to do with healing trauma. We're able to see the world differently when we begin to work through all of that stuff. And belief is only possible when we're letting go of that which is clouding our vision, you know, which is a lot of hurt and darkness and pain and real stuff. But they're less true than the opposite. Yeah.
0: So when you started to read, when you started to rebuild your faith and you were doing this within the context of, within the context of a place that exemplified some of the things that you had worked to personally reject. What did you what did you replace those things with that you had resolved that for you personally were not representative of your understanding of Christianity and of philosophy in general. Cause I do remember having some conversations with you and some other philosophy majors that technically theology could be a subset of philosophy. <laughs> I don't know if you still believe that, but that was definitely a college discussion. I remember um, from way back when now. Um, but what did you, when, when you went through this process, this deeply personal, this deeply painful thing and then you're you are slowly working to reconstruct things um what when it comes to because uh, when it comes to just the kind of the types of belief that you now gravitate towards because a lot of what um i mean a lot of a big part of evangelicalism is tied into you know their semblance of an idea of orthodoxy and uh or like a believing something even if they won't use even if the word orthodoxy isn't the the word that is used it's still the the meaning that's being carried is that you have a certain mm-hmm. type of correct belief um but um you um you had you had gone through this process where you began to realize that the things that did not describe the sort of, you know, sort of God you wanted to believe in or the religion or the type of type of behavior you wanted to emulate. What, um, what was the, what were, what were the beliefs or what, what type of teachings really started to speak to you in that time and, and today. So now we can kind of, I mean, we, we can also, you know, open this up to to your experience after college. We don't have to just talk about college here, um, you know. But any, any time after having gone through that period where you recognized um, that this is, that within the confines of this particular realm of belief, you didn't find what you needed, where did you find it?
1: That's a very difficult question. Um, primarily because um, I didn't have a lot of um, easily expressible convictions. Um, I would say from the time I started to rebuild my faith, um, you know, the later years of of college um, and the following years, there was very slow growth for me. In fact, um, the the couple years immediately following graduation, um, one of my friends uh, affectionately called the lost years because I disappeared. I, mean, I was still in Marion, but I wasn't in communication with anyone. Um, I wasn't reading. I wasn't engaging anything. I was working a terrible job. And my life was going nowhere. I literally lived on a dead-end street, (laughs) Um, which I I didn't recognize as being a significant metaphor until much later. Um, (laughs) But you know, the times when your life isn't going anywhere um, are often the time when tremendous work under the surface is being done. And it's true. I was working through a lot of old stuff and still letting go. Um, I had a lot of stuff to let go of. So all my friends had gone on to grad school or or seminary. Um, I wasn't going anywhere because I wasn't ready. I didn't have a faith that could handle academic rigor again. Um, I didn't have a heart that was ready for it. Um, and so it's very difficult for me to conceptualize um, in any kind of intellectual way um, what was happening with my faith. Um, I don't know that I was replacing all of the old stuff with much that was new in a concrete way. I was mostly still cleaning out um, all of the garbage. Um, I was progressively letting go of old ideas and old attitudes and um the nascent faith that was growing that was new um i was having to protect it carefully because if i read the wrong thing on the wrong day you know if i wasn't doing well one day and i read something hyper skeptical then i would you know, I'd be back to square one again. Um, and eventually I learned how to bounce back from that and work through it. Um, I, was, I was just so fragile that I didn't have a lot to show for my work. Um, all of that was necessary groundwork for what came much later. And much later, really I mean the last four years of my life. Only in the last four years of my life have I begun to find a theological home. Um, And only in the last year, just the last year, um, have I been able to um, put into language what my deepest convictions are. I, I had them before. More or less. But they were mixed in with the old. They they didn't have a life of their own yet. And they hadn't crystallized into something I could communicate very well. Which, by the way, if you can't con- communicate your convictions as a pastor, that puts you in a difficult spot. <laughs> You're probably not a very good pastor. And I wasn't. Um, so, yeah, when we're talking about, like, what if I replaced that with... Well, I mean, replacement, um, I don't know of a better word for it, but I don't know if replacement is, is a good word either for, for, for whatever I was doing. Um, I was being restructured into a person who was relatively human and healthy, um, um, one of my friends calls it becoming a real boy. Um, <laughs> and and I mean it. Um, um, I feel human, and i I don't relate to the person I was before that long process. I don't understand that person very well anymore. Um, and the the process of moving from that person to who I am now, very cloudy. Um, I don't have a lot of concepts um, and categories for it. It's almost like the way you don't um, store memories well when you're a very young child because you just have had enough, you know, uh, enough experience to build concepts to be able to even process the memories. Um, And in a way, spiritually, that's where I was at, I think. Um, and so in the last four years, I, I was convinced that I should go on to seminary. So I started seminary.
0: Um, and is that when you also started working as a pastor as well? No. In the last four years or, you know,
1: I, I started pastoral work just two years out of college and I, I didn't want to, um, but I had started dating a girl and um, attended her church some because I was just floating and they were in need of of a part-time associate pastor and they were looking for someone, but they didn't know how to look or find. And they said, you have the education, you do it. And I said, okay, because I mean, I was working at Walmart not doing anything meaningful with my life. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And I was terrible. (laughs) But being in real community with real people, even if we were on very different pages theologically, um, did have a lot to do with shaping me and uh, forcing me to work through some of my baggage and my behavior. You know, taught me how to actually be considerate and compassionate toward people. So, um, no, I started pastoral work early, and I got the better end of it. Hmm. Um, However, when I did start at the same time as I started seminary, um, well, I was only a couple years into social work as a side career, it ended up becoming my primary, you know, career, I guess. Um, I, I'd been doing social work, decided to go to seminary, and then I became actively involved with um, the little monastery in the next town over. Um, and, I mean, we call it a monastery, but it's it's a mother house for a small uh like convent community. Um, They're missionary sisters. And when they retire from their missionary work, mostly in the Southwest, they come live here. And so it's an amazing place to go because on one hand, there's the typical monastery convent environment, beautiful grounds, very peaceful, but also all of these elderly women who have spent their entire lives in service to the poor and they will have an impact on a person. (laughs) Um, Hmm. and they're exactly what I did, especially since the way I got involved there, uh, was, um, studying the mystical tradition. Um, and then entering into a spiritual direction practice where I was receiving spiritual direction um, and I was being uh, taught and trained in spiritual direction. I had um, someone who was mentoring me in giving spiritual direction. And then I had to begin offering spiritual direction to others. So it was very a very holistic approach to this. Um, and combined with seminary exposing me to new theological conversations, engaging the mystical tradition, but also having this tremendous formative experience personally. it's—it's. Um, it's, I don't have words for it. Hmm. I just don't. Um, but I feel like I have crystallized. I have uh, become who I actually am in the last few years. I understand myself, um, I see my story for what it is, and I don't identify with my story <laughs> so much, um, and I have more peace and I'm happier, um, I'm a more effective pastor, and eventually, through that process, I was able to begin verbalizing what my new convictions are. Hmm. But that was that was the last thing that happened.
0: Yeah, and um, and I mean that uh, as as your as your story indicates that sort of development takes time, and um, given given where you are now, um, and given the overall context of of this program, um, it, do you what um, I what do you think? is a larger priority now um for for you and the, and the way and, and engaging with the mystical tradition and um maybe you can speak to a little more particulars in regards to that and how that might um for someone that that may come from an evangelical background um but doesn't have that particular experience um what does what does that branch of the, of the Christian faith, what does that um, what does that offer? What does that teach? What does that that offer for your your sense of being? Or um, you, as you said, you feel more crystallized now. Um, and I don't. I and this is a as you another word you you said that was very good was you know this is being a holistic thing. Mm-hmm. This was something for you that was deeply personal, deeply interconnected um with that in mind is that is that something um with it what within that within that part of your journey um what does what did that teach you um or what has that what has that developed within you um that would be that would be good for someone that for someone that hasn't had that experience to hear regardless of whether they come or come from an evangelical background or not. Um, what, what would be good for them to hear about that?
1: Right. Well, I want to say so much, uh, in response to to this question, um, I should only say the things that are the most important, uh, but I want to say so much
0: well, we can have more than one conversation if you'd like. If you'd like, we can have more than one conversation and we can even be um more targeted than this. Um sure. right right now we're we're getting your your story, Stephen. Yeah, so Yeah. Yeah. Um, well,
1: and, and 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 I think that's key here. Um because I can talk about, you know, the the mystical tradition in general or the the theological Schools that I've been engaging and and the benefits and why they matter and all that, but what matters here in this discussion is um, the change in me and what was significant in that um, if i were to if I were to if I were to try to conceptualize the two or three most significant holistic events for me that have come out of my experience with the mystical tradition and spiritual direction? What would those things be? Um, that's sort of how I'm, I'm, how I'm phrasing your question for myself. Is that fair?
0: That's absolutely fair. Yes. I, I, I was working through that question even as I was, (laughs) even as I was saying it. So that's a, that's a very good rephrasing of my question.
1: Okay. Well, this is good because these things in some ways seem a bit disconnected, but I promise they are not. Um, all of these things hit at the very root of, um, my very identity and how I've, how I've lived my entire life and why I'm able to live differently now. Um, and in fact, it may be difficult for me to say them without crying a bit. Let's see what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, holistic really is the key word because I'm a person who, in response to the demands of the world, and especially in um, dark circumstances, I, I retreated into my mind. Uh, I'm an intelligent person, and I could engage with things in my mind, and distance my heart, and perhaps even shut it down, and I could stay more safe. Especially since, um, you know, with a mentally ill mom who who used emotion to control and abuse, um, any amount of emotional vulnerability uh, was dangerous. Um, that that would be used against me. And so I had a, I had a deep uh, mistrust of the world um, and a deep mistrust of experience. And that, that blended with the kind of evangelicalism I was raised with. One of the things I, I used to say once, I, once this clicked for me was that every sermon I heard about joy— was a sermon against happiness. And it's totally true, not an exaggeration, because every time they would praise joy, lift joy up as a Christian virtue, they would say, joy is not happiness. But wait a second. Happiness is a very good marker of joy, right? But I was taught to not trust my happiness right? Um, that's dangerous. And I think that that dynamic isn't just true of happiness and joy. It's true of a lot of things with, with Christianity, um, at least like conservative evangelical Christianity. The things that are the best in life are also really dangerous and you probably shouldn't engage them. And that's not entirely wrong. We protect the most important things in life or the most powerful things in life by putting boundaries around them to protect ourselves from those things and to preserve a certain sacredness around those powerful things. Boundaries around those things are good. You know, um, I mean, even as a society, even on a secular level, we've learned that, you know, just Uncontrolled sexuality is actually a very dangerous and destructive thing. So, we putting boundaries around sexuality is really important and valuable. However, we could really go overboard with that stuff, and it's it's like the story that I mentioned, where my grandma slapped the cards out of my hand in church because cards are associated with gambling. And I was doing them in mm-hmm. church, right? Like the boundaries around these things become so absurd that they impede the living of life. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> when, when I spend time with the mystical tradition, um, and I, I was forced to engage, um, my actual experience of the world and to learn to be present to my own self, to be aware of what my own experience in the moment is because I'll disengage from that and be in my mind, but to, to dwell in my body, to feel my body where it's at and to notice what am I noticing in myself? What am I noticing in the world around me and not allowing my mind to run off with that and make associations and begin processing. Just accept the moment for what it is, accept what I'm noticing for what it is, and, 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 and be okay with that. Accept those things as gifts, not to be dissected and, and thereby d- destroyed. Like I can understand them, but now they're dead. Um, but to allow them to be alive and to engage them as a holistic human person in an environment not as a disembodied mind which was my old tendency so when i when i began doing that that well that means you have to trust your experience a bit and one of the one of the nuns one of the sisters one of the most profound moments in my life she made this simple observation Who was Jesus? Jesus was the one who spoke with his own authority. That's what other people noticed in him, was not that he cited all the other sages and authorities. He spoke with his own authority, which means he trusted his own experience of who God was. And so if we are following Jesus, we need to be the people who trust our experience of who God is. That was mind-blowing for me. Trusting our experience of who God is. Because that means my intuition about who God is can engage the voice of tradition as an equal I don't have to just accept the orthodoxy handed to me. I don't have to reject it out of hand. I can engage with it as if I have a certain authority. Because I do have a certain authority. Not that I am an authority over tradition, but I am the one who is aware of my intuitions of who God is. And when my intuitions of who God is resonate with those who have devoted their lives to that intuition of who God is and we're resonating on the same frequency, we have the same or similar experiences of who God is, then that's something that can be trusted. And so that leads me to the number one thing, which is this Carl Rahner quote, um, a Catholic theologian. Uh, and it's one of Uh, It's a quote that I keep coming back to all the time. In the future, Christians will either be mystics, or they won't exist at all. Meaning, we will either collectively rediscover that an actual encounter with the mind in a holistic, experiential way is the cornerstone of what it means to be Christian... Or all of this other stuff is going to collapse because it's built on nothing. Because I'm not the only skeptic, you know. Uh, I'm not the only cynic. Our culture is increasingly skeptical and cynical. Um, at least in our little slice of time, that's where we're moving. And my story is the story of a person being called out of cynicism and into a skeptical but honest approach to faith. And that means I, I engage all the intellectual questions, and I, have, I know all the reasons why I shouldn't believe what I believe. But I also have this experience. And if I trust that, I can have a certain peace in my faith, despite all my questions. That's a, that can be a little tenuous, but I think that's the genuine experience of faith. It means wrestling with the world as it is, and wrestling with uh, the religious tradition handed to me. And for me, as, as, as you know, a pretend Bible scholar, wrestling with the text, and studying and engaging in this in as deep a way as I can— And refusing to let go of one or the other. I want to hold it all together in tension and also be able to set it aside and just be me in the moment with my experience of who God is. Mm -hmm. And what that that leads me to is the final thing, if we have enough time for that. We do. the the final most significant thing I've gotten from my engagement with this, with the mystical tradition. I was on a silent retreat. And I I was in a dry place with my prayer. Not only was I, I didn't feel like I was getting any kind of response or experience. I also felt like I wasn't able to be present in my own prayer. I didn't know what I was doing, much less what God was doing. And so I was just kind of trying different things to see if I could uh, get some traction. And at, at this location, there's an outdoor Stations of the Cross. So I was walking up the Stations of the Cross, this ravine, this, beautiful in the woods and um, I couldn't even appreciate the beauty of the woods. I was so frustrated at this point in my life. I was, I was having to experience again, um, working through some of the trauma from my mom. Cause you know, it's the onion thing. Every so often you realize, Oh, there's a little bit more that I could work through and release. I was doing that. And my marriage was falling apart at the same time. I, I, we were facing an imminent divorce. And so, those two patterns of how, like, my own personal complications with engaging the feminine, right? Um, reapproaching trauma from my mom and then um, letting go of my wife um, and feeling very guilty about that. I'm walking up the stations of the cross and I'm no stranger to them. So I'm not engaging just the surface level stories. uh, Or at least they're not having that emotional impact that they often do. And I don't even remember what scene or what station it was, but the scene before me um, involved Mary. Mary was present and the ever present um a love of Mary, the one who doesn't have to endure suffering herself, but also doesn't abandon the one who suffers, walks alongside him the whole way, right? Shares in the suffering. And um and I remember saying out loud which I'm on a silent retreat, but I just say out loud with far more venom than I realized would come to the Jesus who's carrying his cross, I say, at least you had a good mom, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed because, you know, you develop a dark sense of humor about religion and all of this stuff when those are your experiences. Um, I laughed and then later on I realized that actually was cutting to the heart of everything and it was the figure of Mary who helped me realize, um, what it means to be accepted and loved and safe, welcome, you know, um, and it came through this, I, I had, I don't know if you want to call it a vision. I didn't see it. it. It was something I saw in my mind, right? It was an imagining, but it was a significant imagining, I guess. I wasn't creating it myself, I think. Um, I have trouble with anxiety and, um, and some ticks, right? And so if my anxiety is high and I'm ticking a lot, that drives me crazy. And sometimes it'll drive other people crazy. Um, There's isn't a whole lot that other people can do to help me in that moment. But one thing that people can do is just be beside me and silently put a hand on my shoulder. And I will instantly calm down. Because that kind of silent presence... Accepting physical touch that's safe, but establishes a certain kind of intimacy, somehow cuts to the root of my anxiety, right? Um, And I saw Mary do that with me so that I could enter the presence of God, right? And I was engaging with God um, using all this feminine imagery of mother and lover um as the one who's willing to accept me not not reject me um, and i was reminded of the overtold story of the prodigal son um and i realized the whole point of the prodigal son story isn't the son who leaves or the son who stays, they're both kind of assholes. (laughs) And neither of them is terribly repentant at the end of the story. And the father doesn't care. The father welcomes them both home and just wants them to be home. And presumably repentance comes once you're at home being welcomed. And... I suddenly realized what a lie I was told with all of my old evangelical theology. That God can't be in the presence of sin. Bullshit. The very point of the incarnation is that God enters into the very heart of sin, and it's not a threat. God is not threatened by sin. The whole point of everything is that God can forgive sin because God's not threatened by it. And the fact that you might be struggling with sin uh, has nothing to do with God's ability and willingness and desire to, to welcome you into his presence. And that was when I was finally able to let go and allow myself to be welcomed to the, into the presence of God And actually experience God and yada, yada, yada. Everything comes from that.
0: Wow. That's, uh, that's incredibly powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. um... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm at a loss for words to (laughs) be completely honest. Um, I'm, I'm definitely lost in my own mind, really just kind of thinking through all of the things you've said. Um, Especially about that moment and and having all of those things arrive in your mind and in in your heart at once must have been something else entirely <laughs> so um i I honestly don't think we could uh leave on a much higher note than that <laughs> as far yeah. as as far as uh, closing out this, um, closing out the interview portion here. Um, cause that, I mean, that, that really speaks to everything <laughs> for lack of a better word. So I, thank you very much. Thank you. For,
1: what's that? Sorry. Sorry. I think that's one of All the right, reasons why I wanted to champion this project of yours, you know, um, I wanted to see it come about because this is the, this is the conversation to have. I mean, you're having it in a very specific way. Um, but this is exactly what needs to be engaged. You know, um, I saw myself in your project and I wanted it to happen. Aside from the fact that, well,
0: um, (laughs) and aside from the fact that what,
1: aside from the fact that I believe in your project, you know,
0: (laughs) Well I mean that absolutely that as i as I mentioned before that your your uh constant encouragement over the last couple of years is, um has definitely meant a lot um uh but yeah I mean that's exactly that's those these are the stories that i am looking for that these are the things that you arrive at an understanding that's greater than the one that was given to you. Mm-hmm essentially. Yeah. Um, you were, um, I don't know. Evangelicalism in in general has a sort of a veneer. It, um, when you, it, they give you certain, certain expressions of it. There isn't much thought to it. And then once you dive into the thoughts, they're not very satisfactory. Um, <laughs> Um, but, and I think part of it is, is that it isn't, um, and this is part of my own exploration as well, um, is that it, it, it feels like it's addressing only a tiny sliver of the human experience and of mm-hmm. our understanding of divinity. Right. And I mean, I, and that, um, and it not wanting to end on a on a negative note, but on the positive note that you um so so eloquently put that that God is there amidst the sin um amidst all those things um that is such a revelatory thing to consider. And I uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you for sharing that story. And I hope that people are encouraged by it. I know that I am. So, well, Stephen, thank you so much for, for talking with me for um, close to two hours now. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And it's
1: been a privilege. I'm glad we, glad we connected.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we will uh, um, thank you again for, for sharing your very personal and very encouraging story. And it's, I mean, you have expressed it very beautifully and I'm, I'm, very appreciative of it. So I'm glad to, to know you better. Um, and I, I hope that people, um, that will hear this episode are encouraged. So thank you. Absolutely.